Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ruchi Gupta, who's Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Northwestern University. Her research focuses on food allergies. Uh, welcome, Ruchi. What's welcome. up? Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this on a weekend. Um, so, you, so you have a book. Uh, I, is the book published, uh, Food Without Fear, Identify, Prevent, and Treat Food Allergies, Intolerances and sensitivities. Is the book out? Yeah, it came out this past Tuesday. Yeah. Oh, so ah, okay. It's available <laughs> in book form and audio, Audible and all of the audio forms too. So, yes, very exciting. So, it's good timing. So, um, allergies, I know that it has been on the rise um, world over, uh, especially in the United States. Uh, Allergies, uh, uh, just like in cancer, we have variety of allergies. It's very difficult to put them into a singular bucket, I would imagine. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, um, what is what is sort of the scope of this problem worldwide? Yeah, so this is a very important first question because this is the area that my lab uh, works on the most is, is what is the burden? You know, what is the epidemiology, the public health impact? A food allergy and how is it changing? And so what we found in the US, I'll talk and then I'll, I'll make it more global. In the US um, for kids, it's about one in 13 kids. So it's about two kids in every classroom has a food allergy. And in adults in the US, we just did a study last year where we found that it was one in 10 adults. So that is a big number, you know, 10% of adults have a food allergy, but one in five, so 20%, said they had a food allergy. So even more have other food conditions. And that's one of the big reasons we wrote this book is because so many people are avoiding foods. 85 million people in the US are avoiding a food. And many of them, only one in 20, were getting a diagnosis. So there is a big population uh, in the US specifically who eats, who are you know having some negative reaction when they eat a food and then um, avoiding the food 
and not really knowing exactly what it is, you know, and so it gets turned into this food allergy. Now, globally, it's really interesting because we do see a rise on a global scale. Um, there are certain countries we have really good data from. Australia, for example, there they saw that in one-year-olds, it was already 10% had a food allergy. Um, Europe, we have some data in the Europreval, and it really ranges. I actually have this beautiful global map um, that we use a lot that shows the prevalence across the world. There's in Europe, it also ranges uh, depending on the country from you know about one percent to about nine percent. So um, a large variability country to country. We don't have a ton of data from Asia itself. The um, the other problem with getting really good data on prevalence is that uh, people don't ask the question the same way, right? So if I asked you just simply, you know, do you have a food allergy? Or should I ask you, did you get diagnosed by a physician? Or do I need to know your symptoms? Because if you have a food allergy, it's very confusing if it's a true food allergy or is it an intolerance or, you know, a sensitivity or, or one of the GI things, you know, are you just having reflux? You know, what what is exactly going on in your body? And so that's that's another big issue. But I, I am joining, um, I'm a part of this global initiative to ask the same questions across the globe and get better prevalence numbers. But what we do know is it's on the rise. You know, it is definitely on the rise. It's on the rise. So about 10% uh, incidence rates, this is just food allergies. We're not talking about other types of allergies, right? Yeah. Most people are allergic in the springtime, you know, I have a problem and I take the nasal drops for it. So this is specific food allergies we're talking about, something that you eat yes. and the body's allergic to that particular thing. That's that exactly. To digest. Yeah, and what you mentioned with environmental allergies is why this term is so confusing, right? Because a lot of times you think of outdoor allergies, you know, um, environmental allergies or even indoor allergies to mold or dust mites or, you know, all the indoor um, potential allergies, cats and dogs, but we're talking specifically food allergy, but the whole atopic spectrum is connected. So the things that fall into that atopic spectrum is usually you see eczema, which comes on first, and then kind of start growing up and getting into the food allergies, the environmental allergies, and then um, the last one is asthma. So all of these conditions are related. It doesn't mean you're going to have them all, uh, you can have one without the rest, but they are connected. So we do see kids who end up, you know, have, developing all of them, you know, eczema to allergies to asthma. So allergy, uh, is it right to characterize allergy as sort of an immune response of the body that, so to, to something that it doesn't quite understand or doesn't quite like? Is that the way to think about it? That's great. And that's the biggest question people ask. So what is the difference? And you said it. So it's uh, allergy is immune mediated, right? So your immune system is recognizing this food as an invader and goes on attack mode, you know, and starts attacking it and releasing histamine and all kinds of um, cytokines. And um, then what happens in your body is this cascade. So that's why it's so hard with food allergies, because your reaction can be mild. You can just have hives. Um, sometimes vomiting, but then it can get severe very fast. And that could be trouble breathing, um, throat closing, uh, drop in blood pressure, and it can even be life-threatening. So um, it is this wide gamut, right, from very mild reactions to very severe reactions. And right now in the world of food allergy, 
we can't predict what you're going to have. It's so dependent on so many things, you know, how much of it you ate, um, you know, if your immune system's compromised in any way during that time. I mean, there's so many variables that um, that's why quality of life is so hard because you don't know if you accidentally ingest it. Will it be a severe reaction that takes you to the emergency room or a milder reaction? The, the immune system is, of course, a sort of a double-edged sword, right? So I'm thinking evolutionarily, um, maybe 50,000, 100,000 years ago, things were sort of stable, right? The, the fruits, nuts, and the animals that Homo sapiens ate were constrained within a small area. And so from the body's perspective, they had, you know, essentially very good heuristics uh, to identify what is food and what's not. Uh, is that what is causing in the modern context, we eating all sorts of different things, packaged food and uh, a lot of different things coming into the system yeah. and the body is somewhat confused in some ways? Yeah, that's, you know, the, the question of why, why in this one generation, like you said, a generation ago, when we were young, you know, we didn't see this level of food allergies. Everyone was taking peanut butter and jelly to school every day, you know, all those things you hear. And now in this generation, you're seeing such high rates. So what, what you mentioned is exactly right. Like, how did we eat back then? Usually it was more locally grown, you know, like seasonal food, you know, at times there were not as many, you know, prepackaged, you know, um, now the supply chain, you can get anything anytime, right? Because it's coming from all over the world. And so what is how that done? And then, you know, obviously, I mean, everything, you know, everything has a reaction, right? So if you need to make more food faster, you're going to be using more pesticides and you're going to be using, you know, different chemicals. And, and does that, that's great for, you know, the ability to produce food for the masses, but what is that also doing in our systems? Or what is the negative effect of that? So could there be a negative effect of this ramp up of food production? And like you said, you know, preservatives, packaged foods, you know, fast foods, like the, the more and more that's happening. So that is one area that is implicated to some extent, or we're, we're studying it, us and many researchers around the globe, trying to understand what about that is impacting food allergies. The other things that you mentioned is, uh, is you know, when we all stayed locally, you know, what is it in the microbiome, right, in our environment? Um, we've also become very clean and the use of antibiotics increased, like all in this generation, you know, and is that wiping out our good bacteria? Um, one thing we see is people who immigrate, you know, including myself, like if you immigrate uh, to the US or Australia did a really great study if you were from Asia and you immigrated to Australia, your kids who were not born, who were now born in US or Australia, had a much higher chance of developing food allergies than even the local people. Now, is that because they're missing something in the microbiome of their ancestors, right? Like, so in your genetics, that then you lost in that first year of life and, and now that's causing it. So what are those microbiome components? You know, what are the things we're doing, you know, more C-sections, more antibiotics to wipe out those good bacteria? You know, are we too clean? Are immune systems bored? You know, a lot of, a lot of different thoughts around the why. Yeah, I remember reading something that uh, when, uh, you know, when you move from X to Y, um, your microbiome uh, essentially re replaces itself within seven days. 
uh, I can quite remember where I where I saw this. So, if this were true, then um, you you essentially you know sort of a new microbiome um, in the new environment. Uh, but I guess it's not completely true, right? Uh, maybe it is true 90, 95% of the time, but there is sort of a 5% left over, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know the exact number for that or how quickly microbiome gets replaced. And you have to think about where. So, you know, we have we talk a lot about the gut microbiome as being um, a source of, of the bacteria that's so important, but you have it on your skin too, you know, the skin microbiome. And we do know that certain things do influence it and environment is definitely one, right? Because you change environments, you're exposed to a whole new microbiome in your new environment, you know, that's gonna impact your body. And what is that doing? Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. You know, in the survey we did in adults, we asked the adults, um, the 10% who had food allergies, you know, did you develop a new one as an adult? And 50% said yes. So 50% of the adults with food allergies said they had developed a new food allergy as an adult. So they used to be able to eat the food and now they can't. And so that was really interesting to us because we asked the next question, did you change your environment? Did you move somewhere? Did you move into a different um, house or apartment, you know, which may have more indoor allergens in it? Um, did you get sick? You know, did you have any hit to your immune system? And then for women, a lot of times we talk about hormonal changes. So, you know, pregnancy, menopause, those are times where we do see food allergies developing or disappearing. So understanding all these things, you know, even in adults, you know, we're seeing it. And um, just, just to that point, you know, the number one allergen we're seeing in adults is shellfish, the development of shellfish allergy. It's so high. And then after that, the rest are the same as in kids. It's peanut, tree nuts, milk, egg, soy, wheat, thin fish, and then sesame. Yeah, so, so shellfish, for instance, uh, yeah. some of these are sort of connected with disease states. For example, shellfish uh, has high uric acid production that leads to gout. Uh, and so body sort of reacts to certain things, uh, but it's sort of connected with allergies. I want to ask you, is there any data on people who travel a lot, you know, like consultants uh, traveling to different countries on a routine basis or even within a country? Mm. Do they have less or more allergies? Is there any data? No, no, that's really interesting. I, I don't think there's any data on that. But the next time we do our, you know, we do these prevalence surveys of 40,000 um, adults and then 40,000 children, maybe we should ask that. What, what's your job and how much do you travel? That's really interesting. No, I don't think anyone knows, but very good question. So it seems like it goes both ways, right? So when you when you sort of move from different uh, different locations, you have sort of a microbiome stress, and that might lead to uh, lead to some issues. We yeah. we are often told that it's good to eat a variety of things. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit counter to this idea, right? I mean, you know, does, does, doesn't the microbiome and the body want to settle down to a routine so that it knows who the invaders are? If you keep eating different things, wouldn't that create a problem? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I think we are told to eat for nutrition, right? So there's different aspects of 
why we're told different things, right? So to get a, a variety in your diet or a, a multicolored diet, right? So have different colors of the food in your diet um, is really important because they all bring different vitamins, um, proteins, minerals, all the things that you need. Um, I think, you know, one, one thing that we're really talking about a lot uh, that that reminds me of is diet diversity early. So one big thing in this book we talk about that we do know, you know, as we see the numbers go up is um, when we started seeing the numbers go up in year 2000, we, uh, we, the American Academy of Pediatrics said, okay, let's not introduce peanuts to babies until they're three months, three years old, because we were seeing this rise in peanut allergy. And then it, that's what we told everyone. And then in uh, 2015, the LEAP study from London showed that early introduction of peanuts, especially in high-risk infants with eczema, decreased the prevalence or the incidence of peanut allergy in those babies by 80%. Now, that number was so, so high that the guidelines got reversed right away. And now we're saying, eat peanuts early, <laughs> get it into your baby's diet. And so when you talk about diversity, of diet, I think one thing that we've done in this country, and I think it's starting to get into other countries, is medicalize early feeding, right? We say, oh, just feed one food, wait three to five days, introduce another food, wait three to five days. And so babies aren't getting a lot of variety and they're not getting a lot of these allergens in their diet early on. And so their immune system, while it's developing, is not recognizing them. And so that's like one big point, you know, if there's, you know, other physicians or parents, you know, just early stop medicalizing you know we used to just take whatever you're eating and chew it up and give it to your baby you know <laughs> and just make it soft so they could eat it and it had so many ingredients in it because it's your food but now we've become so so careful and so medical with with food introduction yeah i'm sure i was also wondering uh, any sort of difference in breast uh, fed uh, babies as opposed to uh, not uh, in later food allergies? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of studies starting to look at that. And so far, what we've seen is there's no difference um, in the development of food allergy. Uh, we do, I, I think there's some early papers showing maybe it could influence asthma and other atopic conditions. But for food allergy, there's no conclusive data. Um, we always encourage breastfeeding, obviously, for so many reasons. But I don't want anyone who is not breastfeeding um, and bottle feeding to ever feel like they're increasing their baby's chances of developing some of these conditions because some people can't and it's hard and you know so I, I but obviously if you can um, breastfeeding has other things the one thing about breastfeeding is now you know we recommend exclusive breastfeeding till six months and that is a little bit difficult because what we found in the food allergy world is especially for those high risk babies with eczema they should really get those peanut products and, and these foods in their diet earlier, like four months, because every month that goes by, their likelihood gets more and more of developing food allergy. Um, so the earlier they get a little bit in their diet, the better. So that's just the one thing, but it, it doesn't take away from breastfeeding. You continue to breastfeed. You just add a couple of foods to the diet when the baby's ready. Now that's what we say, right? Like when they're they're sitting up and they're looking hungry and drooling while watching you eat and then you start feeding them you know so and then continue the breast milk or you know bottle feeding yeah so so i want to go back to the the book uh, food without fear 
maybe uh, we can step through some of the chapters. So the so you have two uh, two major areas. The first one is the food reaction spectrum. Where are you? Yeah. Uh, you see a surprising rise of reactions to food in the 21st century. So um, we talked about prevalence approximately 10% of the population. You said it is growing, but do you have a sense of how fast it's growing? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a really good question. I mean, we did surveys in 2011, and then we published another one in 2019 for kids. And we found that um, it did not increase dramatically. It was 8% then, and it was 8% now, um, if we use the exact same methodology, maybe it increased just slightly, but not not to any significant degree. Um, so I don't know. But the other thing, and this is where I want to you you mentioned, you know, the food allergies or the food spectrum, food spectrum of food conditions. And this is in the book. Um, and we did our best because people say, OK, what are they? What are all these conditions that you're talking about with food? And so what we were able to do is take symptoms and then you know, break it out into allergies, mixed reactions, masqueraders, and other masqueraders. And just to explain a little bit of that, you know, when we talk about a food allergy versus intolerance, you know, we talked about allergies immune-mediated. But what's an intolerance? And an intolerance is more around not being able to digest the food, right? You're not able to break it down. So you think of lactose intolerance, you're missing the enzyme to digest or to break down the lactose. And so you get symptoms of stomach cramping and bloating and, you know, nausea, vomiting, could have diarrhea. A lot of people get headaches and brain fog. So, but that is a different um, mechanism of action, you know, in an intolerance. Um, and then, you know, there's so many other things. The other big food that we talk about a lot is gluten, right? Like so much of the country has become gluten-free. So much food is gluten-free. And many people have an intolerance to gluten where some reason they're not able to digest it and they get heaviness and stomach pain and lethargy, and so they stop eating it. But then you can also, wheat allergy is one of the top allergies, real uh, immune-mediated food allergy. And then you can have celiac disease, right, which is uh, a whole different category where when you eat the gluten, um, it, it changes your stomach lining, so you're not digesting the gluten or any other food. So, you know, symptoms are, again, the GI, but you can also have weight loss um, and you know, poor growth. So just from that one food, there's three different conditions, you know, that could be going on. So I, I think in this book, we really try to um, explain all that and then explain the symptoms so that people can understand what's happening in their body, um, better understand the science behind these conditions. And then there's a quiz you take, and then you can take that to your doctor and have a better discussion about what's happening. Yeah, so one thing I was wondering, are our diagnostic capabilities increasing? Um, is there higher awareness? So is that you seek treatment? Uh, so the incidence rate growth that we are seeing, you know, we see the same thing in ADHD or autism, things like that. It has been growing because people are aware of it and our diagnostic capabilities have increased. Is sort of similar thing happening in, uh, in food allergies? Yeah, so... Like you said, awareness is definitely increasing. Um, diagnosis is getting better. Diagnosis isn't great. You know, for a lot of these food conditions, it's a really good history. You know, your doctor is going to listen very carefully and, and understand what happens when you eat the food. For food allergies, there are two tests. There's a skin prick test, and then there's a blood test, which measure, measures the IgE to that food. You know, so a peanut-specific IgE. 
Um, both of those tests are great for ruling it out. So if they're negative, chances are you don't have a food allergy. But if they're positive, there's a very low positive predictive value. So if they're positive, you have a 50-50 chance of having the food allergy. So that's when you know the gold standard is to sit in a doctor's office and eat the food and see what happens. You know, So it's a simple test. We call it an oral food challenge, but you're just sitting there with medical professionals ready to take care of you if you have a reaction and you eat the food slowly and increase it. And if you don't have a reaction, you don't have a food allergy. So it's, it's, it's as simple as that. That's our testing right now. But there are new diagnostics coming out. We talk about them in the book that are much more sensitive. So hopefully in the next couple of years, I'm, I'm hoping that we will have a test where you don't have to put yourself or your child through an oral food challenge. Yeah, it's an important point that, as, as you said, um, sort of intolerance, meaning either you lack an enzyme to digest it, uh, so you put something into the body, the body has to get rid of it somehow. Yep. The immune system is not really bothered. You know, it's just sort of a processing question mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to sort of immune reaction to something. So this is when the body thinks it's an invader yeah. and it has to react to it, right? So. That is sort of a dangerous uh, situation. It can be uh, life-threatening in some cases. It could be mitral in others. Uh, and so, so when we think about food allergies, what percentage of them are in this sort of, you know, general stuff like lactose intolerance and and gluten intolerance and things like that, as opposed to the real sort of immune reaction to something? Yeah. So, I would say, you know, when we we did some work. Um, recently, uh, where we looked across um, the general population to see how many people were avoiding a food because of a food condition. And that was 85 million. So, and of that, about 32 million we know have a food, an immune-mediated food allergy. So that leaves about 50 million (laughs) in the middle that have some other condition. And we know lactose intolerance is very common. I don't know the exact prevalence, and I'm not sure if it's been documented, but lactose intolerance is very common. Other intolerances are very, very common. Um, Things like celiac are even on the rise, you know, and then you have things like inflammatory bowel disease or the GI things. And then you see even, you know, another condition that we see increasing more and more is eosinophilic esophagitis, right, which is kind of a mixed, slightly immune, but also, you know, non-immune. So it's, you know, the eosinophils building up in your esophagus when you eat a certain food. So there are, we're, we're learning more and maybe these all existed and we didn't have the names for them, you know, and we couldn't put them in the right bucket. And now with more and more people developing them, we're starting to categorize them and, and study them and learn more about them. Yeah, it's interesting. So the 50 million uh, could think that they have some sort of a problem with some food. Mm-hmm. These are sort of end of one experiments, right? So these are not necessarily scientific observations. They went to a restaurant, they ate something, and they got sick, and they're going to just discard that, you know, that component in the future. Um, And so we don't know what is uh, real in that 50 billion, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's such an important point you made, because sometimes you do just have this reaction one time and take the food out, and you really don't have anything. Maybe, you know, it was a little bit of food poisoning or something else, right, that could have happened but you don't have an allergy. And that's why, you know, in this book, we we try to, to explain all of them and, and take a quiz and then 
really encourage everyone to see someone, you know, see a doctor, because if you don't have a true condition, why, you know, it, it's such, such a hard thing to avoid a food in every single meal, you know, every single day of your life. And so we really want people to know if they can eat it so they don't have to fear it. And that's, the, you know, the title of the book, Food Without Fear, you know, so you don't have to fear eating it and, and you can enjoy, you know, a wider array of foods. Um, so again, that is the, what you said is so right because a lot of people just try to eat something, have just a bad reaction and then take it out. And they're not, they're not getting to a doctor you know, to get the proper diagnosis. Yeah, and it's also sort of a developing country, developed country uh, difference here, right? So if you have the luxury to avoid something, you can do it. In most developing countries, you can't. Um, maybe you had a bit of a problem, but you go back to the same food because you have nothing else. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing, growing up in South India, I, you know, I never heard of food allergies, actually. <laughs> yeah. This is a, it's a, it's, so the incidence rate, I would imagine, is substantially higher in EU and North America compared to the rest of the world, I would think, right? Yeah, well, you know, bringing up India, we're doing a lot of research in India because I'm, I'm very curious about what's going on there. We actually had a conference there in Delhi at Ames around food allergy. Um, right before the pandemic, uh, like a year before the COVID hit. And it was so interesting because people were starting to see it, but they don't really have allergists, right? They don't have this whole system. There's a lot of asthma though in India, right? So, and asthma is related and there's a lot of environmental allergies, but we're not seeing the food allergies. So I was really curious, is India gonna do the same thing that happened in the US? Because in the US, we didn't see any of this a generation, two generations ago either. So. Mm -hmm. I wanted to better understand because as you know, like India is becoming, you know, now the foods are getting similar, right? Like there's the same fast foods um, shops that we have here. You know, like when I go there to a mall, I, I feel like I'm in the US. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't feel any different. Um, people's eating habits are similar. I hear pediatricians there are now recommending the same thing. You know, wait three to five days, introduce one food at a time, avoid peanuts. I, you know, I have young cousins that live there and they were telling me this is what their pediatricians are telling them. They're giving antibiotics a lot. You know, they're saying, oh, they gave, got it two, three times in the first year of life. So all of the things that we did, like probably one generation ago that started increasing is what I feel like happening in especially the bigger cities in some of these countries. And I'm curious to see if, you know, after I wrote this, my cousin wrote me from there and said, oh, I need your help. You know, I have this friend whose daughter is really suffering from food allergies. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, OK, here we go. Like here it's it's starting. You're starting to see it. So one question we often ask is, is it does it not exist or are we not seeing it because they're not getting diagnosed? Like you said, a lot of them will say, oh, OK, something happens. OK, just don't eat that or, eat, you know, something else. But you're not getting to a doctor because there's not really a doctor to go to diagnose it there's only a few centers that really understand it and a lot of asia really you know um and in india for sure the whole field of allergy is just starting to develop there and so we're working with many people there and we're, we're doing a study to look at um rural versus city and and 
try to ask the questions and, and check the prevalence and understand eating habits and those early life factors. So in a couple of years, I'll have those results. <laughs> yeah, I was also thinking, um, Ruchi, that um, what's the connection between food allergies and asthma and the respiratory system? Um, there has to be a connection, right? Because you, you see high sort of coincidental um, rates between the two. And it's also sort of interesting in the context of COVID. Uh, so is it, is it that the respiratory system is sort of sensitive to this immune response of the body? What's happening there? Yeah, I mean, we call it the atopic spectrum, right? So this, the atopy, the atopic conditions, and those are the ones, the eczema, the allergies, and the asthma, you know? And there is a relationship between them. And it's interesting you mentioned COVID because for when COVID started, people were worried about kids with asthma and adults with asthma and how they would do. So we were actually part of a large NIH trial. It's called the HEROES study. And um, there were 19 sites. We were one of them. They, they took cohorts because we all have NIH cohorts. Um, to study ours is for food allergy, and a lot of those kids have asthma, and then there were others for asthma. So um, we were following them through COVID and testing them, and it was really cool. They got a kit at home. They would take their own blood, because it was COVID, and they would do their own swabs, and they would fill out their surveys and send us microbiome. And so we did this at 19 sites. And you know, interestingly, what we found is that there was no increased risk in asthma for asthma. And food allergy was actually protective. If you had a food allergy, you tended not to get COVID um, as severe. I mean, you could still get it, but you didn't have severe disease. And so researchers are still trying to understand why, but it may be the immune pathway that you go down because in food allergy, you're going down the TH2 immune pathway instead of the TH1, right? And so there's a different pathway. And for COVID, the TH1 pathway, there's certain things that get triggered that cause you to have more severe disease, which if you have a food allergy and you're on TH2, you don't have. So it was it was really funny. You know, I don't know if I told you my own daughter has food allergies and she was like, finally a win for <laughs> food allergy, <laughs> something good, you know, that it actually um, may protect you against severe COVID, so. That's so interesting. So it's sort of, uh, if you distract the immune system, uh, it's not distraction, but uh, let's say the immune system has some capacity. Yeah. And if it is, you know, essentially dealing with food allergies, yeah. uh, maybe it doesn't have sufficient bandwidth, you know, to really uh, mount a, a big response to COVID. Yeah. Because I, I think the severe cases is really the immune system overreacting, I would think, right? Yeah, yeah, or it's, it's reacting right as against us and so you know to that theory i have two things one you know for a long time about 10 years ago there was a big push that parasitic worms that's probably why we're not seeing it in developing countries because parasitic worms were potentially protective because your immune system was so busy and they lived in symbiosis with your body and so your immune system was so busy kind of to that point you know because there's this foreign worm inside of you um, that you didn't develop, you didn't see asthma and allergies. So um, this one, I, I won't. I remember it was on NPR. This um, scientist had terrible allergies; could not breathe properly, you know, in the spring, summer, fall, and went um, and heard about this and went somewhere and and purposely got 
parasitic worms, you know, walked around barefoot in an area and got the worms and came back and the next year was free of all symptoms. And so then started studying this um, scientifically, but unfortunately, you know, as they've been studying it, it has not proven to, to be, you know, to, they haven't proven it, you know, like it, it does this work and does it work for everyone? Or is there a subpopulation that I don't know, but to your point, you know, can we keep the immune system busy? And that's why we say now babies or young children should play outside, should play in the dirt, you know, get, you know, the microbiome around you. Um, it's okay, get viruses, you know, all of this is activating your immune system, you know, and getting it rubbed up. Um, to, and then the other point to that was treatments. You know, we, we haven't talked about treatments, but some of the, um, treatments that are coming, the one, there's one FDA approved treatment. It's a, it's a peanut OIT, oral immunotherapy. So it's like eating little bits of peanut until you increase the amount. So you're, you're not cured, but your body can tolerate up to a certain amount. And then you keep that in your diet every day to make sure your immune system continues to recognize it. But the other ones to your immune pathway question are biologics and they kind of break that chain, that cascade, you know, so they stop certain um, certain points in the system where once blocked, then that cascade doesn't continue. So people are making biologics, anti-IgEs, you know, to, to um, hopefully stop that pathway from happening as a treatment. And hopefully, you know, they're all in clinical trials now. So I think in the next five or 10 years, we're going to have a lot of choices for treatment. I was also going to ask you, was there any negative correlation between arthritis and food allergies in, in, the, in adults? Have you seen any data there? No. No. What's your thought on that? Uh, again, and I'm just thinking about autoimmune diseases. And yeah. again, if, if, uh, if autoimmune diseases you know, are a function of overacting immune system, uh, the immune system has something to do, maybe the incidence rates are lower. Cancer is also an interesting question uh, to look at that population, right? Food allergies and cancer, if there is, you know, any sort of correlation there as well. Yeah, no, that's, and we do have a chapter in the book on autoimmune disease. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of research in that space, but a lot of people have hypothesized exactly what you're saying, you know, is all of this, you know, somewhat related, not that everyone has to have everything, but is there a higher percentage who also have other autoimmune conditions. So, yeah, yes. research is relatively young in this space. You know, I started in it 17 years ago and there was almost nothing. And now it's growing um, really rapidly and a lot of researchers are coming in. So I think I think we're going to get more and more data, you know, in the next five or 10 years to answer some of these questions. Yeah, I mean, so it's a growing problem. Uh, you have a chapter here, the genome, epigenome, microbiome, and risk of allergies. We talked a bit about the microbiome. Um, what do we know sort of the genetic uh, aspect? Is there any sort of countrywide uh, data that that seems interesting? Yeah, you know, um, there are a lot of researchers looking at, you know, potential genetic markers and can we can we find something because we do know, you know, obviously all disease is genetics plus environment, right? There's there's both aspects, but genetics haven't changed much. And yet, you know, they it takes a lot longer for genetics to take your genes to change versus the environment. And so we saw this rapid rise. So 
but there must be some genetic predisposition. And then what is the environmental trigger that turns it on, right? So what is your genetic predisposition? And then what can you do to keep that switch off? You know? <laughs> and then what, what potential environmental thing can, can um, combine with your genetic predisposition to turn it on? So um, there are some researchers that have now linked to some genetic potential markers. Um, again, early, early work, you know, and, and things are starting to come out, but we, we don't have a, a conclusive, this is it, you know, this is the gene. Um, but again, I think in the next few years, we're going to get more information on that. Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting if, if this, um, I think there's enough evidence for this, right? If you condition a child early with smaller amounts uh, of a possible food uh, product that he or she might have a problem with, it's smaller and smaller amounts, and you can condition the child to sort of build up the tolerance to it, right? Yeah. So if that is possible, then if there's some sort of a diagnostic early, then you know you can sort of, sort of proactively intervene uh, early, right? Um, but I guess uh, <laughs> the research has just started uh, in that arena. Uh, so, yeah. so I want to talk a bit about, um, so you have another area in the book. Um, so you call it finding food freedom, yeah. identify and empower, treat, manage and prevent and thrive. Um, so treat, manage and prevent. Um, uh, obviously, uh, preventing is the best, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, so what are the sort of the preventative things that people can think of? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of that early stuff, I mean, prevention happens early. So, you know, when your child, it's, it's funny because, you know, my, uh, my daughter was born when the recommendation was to introduce at three. And uh, when that study came out, the New York Times, I think, um, did an interview and said, you know, Dr. Gupta is slapping herself on the wrist for not introducing earlier. So it's interesting because we're, we're learning new things every day, right? But what I do know, what I didn't do, um, what I encourage all parents to do is, you know, diet diversity. Definitely introduce peanuts. We eat peanut products. And it's, it's, you do it by um, taking peanut butter and watering it down and then um, feeding that a little bit, two teaspoons twice a week um, to your baby and keep it in their diet, you know? And then right now, you know, the next question is always, what about other foods? You know, because we talked about there's nine top foods. So in Chicago right now, um, we're fortunate to have a couple studies on early introduction in our lab at CIFAR. And one is around, you know, the peanut introduction and helping that um, happen. And the other is about other foods. So we're looking at tree nuts, we're looking at milk and um, egg and soy and sesame. Um, so we, we are going to do a, a similar trial, introducing those foods early and seeing if then we can prevent all of those food allergies as well. And I'm hopeful it'll take us two or three years to get some good answers, but then hopefully we'll have a better system for helping parents, you know, introduce foods you know, to their infants um, early. But that is the number one way to prevent. Other ways to prevent people are starting to talk about is what we talked about. You know, the cleanliness thing. Play in the dirt, get exposed to microbiome, you know, just be, you know, be, don't, you know, this fear of, of babies not being able to play or, or, or get dirty. 
um, catching things. Let those let those go because it's very important. We're learning, and then you know people are doing things like if you do end up having a C-section, how can we expose that baby to that you know microbiome, the vaginal flora? Um, so people are looking at that you know exposure, and then antibiotics. You know I think we're all as a society trying to cut back, right? So. You know, before if a baby came in, you know, I'm a pediatrician, so if a baby came in with a, you know, feeling sick, probably a virus even, but, you know, is it otitis media and do we give them antibiotics? You know, like all parents wanted something, some medicine to make their kid better. But I think parents are learning now too that no, I don't want antibiotics. You know, if I need it, I want it. If I don't, it's not good. You know, so cutting back on a lot of those things, I think is really important for physicians too, to be more aware. So the variety of food early, introducing them to a high variety. Yeah. Um, but if, if the baby has some sort of a genetic proclivity to food allergy, let's say it's to peanuts, for example, mm-hmm. is it the case that the baby's immune system is less likely to react severely? In other words, would you put the baby at risk if, you know, if he or she has some sort of genetic issue? Yeah, so the number one risk factor this other study found was eczema severe eczema, you know? So if your baby, if they had, you know, red, cracked, dry, itchy, eczematous skin, um, then you need to get tested first. You should go to an allergist, get tested, and then the allergist will decide whether you've already developed it, because there are babies that early on, they're gonna have it, you know? And there's nothing we can do to prevent it. But what they found is that in the majority of those severe eczematous babies, if you carefully introduced, they did not develop 80% reduction, right? So, so yes, you're right. Um, if you have that one big risk factor, you should see an allergist and do it, get tested and do it with their care. Um, if you don't have that risk factor, the level was so low, you know, in terms of development that it was encouraged for everyone to feed. But your other question, you are right. We did a study here in Chicago. We looked at babies and reactions and they tend to have more um, rash, skin rashes and vomiting. They tend, they don't usually go into anaphylaxis. When we looked at almost 300 babies in, who went to the emergency room in Chicago, um, only I think one or two had a more severe reaction than vomiting and hives. So that was a positive thing. So parents should not be too worried, you know, because we knew parents would be scared because we've been scaring them for years. You know, from, right. you know. So, but that's a very good question. Very good. Point. And, and the longer you wait, the more difficult it becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this three-year sort of a policy was under, you know, that sort of a thought process, I would imagine, you know. Yeah. Um, first three years, you know, if there is a problem, it's sort of difficult to take care of. So let the baby get to some level and then and then start to introduce it. But that sort of backfired. Yeah. Um, so 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 that's about prevention. So let's say um, I have identified I have an issue. How do I manage it? Uh, I don't want to necessarily treat it yet, but, yeah. you know, what is sort of the the. Uh, steps I can take to sort of work through it. Yeah, so if it's a true food allergy, we'll do that first. So if it's a true food allergy, management means understanding what could happen, right? What those symptoms are. We talked about it can be any body system. So, you know, skin, um, GI, respiratory, cardiovascular. So understanding the signs and symptoms and then 
you know, the main management right now is avoidance. You have to really be clear that the foods you're eating do not have your allergen in them. And then the other big piece is understanding, you know, how to use an epinephrine auto injector and making sure you have one because um, that is the one medication. It's epinephrine, it's adrenaline, it's in our bodies, you know, it's not dangerous and people shouldn't be scared of it, but it's an auto injector. So you do have to, you know, use it on yourself or, or teach people around you to use it if you can't. But that is something that's really critical to carry with you and to know how to use. So that's you know, the thing. Mm -hmm. EpiPen is one of the brands. Yeah, it's it's one of the brands now. You know, EpiPen used to be the only brand for a long time. Now there's like two other or three other generics. I can't even keep up. And then there's a, another brand called the AviQ, um, which talks to you and kind of tells you what to do. So and then there's still the EpiPen too. So there's there's multiple ones. So now we start calling them epinephrine auto injectors because yeah, there's so many. Um, but that's exactly right. Most people know it as the EpiPen still, right? So it's a device, it's a small auto injector. You put it in in your lateral thigh um, only for, you know, different ones say different amounts, but it's two to three seconds usually is all it takes and then you take it out. And for most of the devices, you won't ever see the needle. It, the medicine goes in within, you know, milliseconds, but you know, they they still ask you to keep it in. So that that's how you use it. It's, it's very simple and it's very important um, to know how to do if you have a food allergy. Now, the intolerances, as you know, you can get, you know, pills with the enzyme in it and take those, you know, that will help your body break down if you want to eat the food. So that's why it's important because if you don't have a, a true food allergy, you know, if you have lactose intolerance, you can still enjoy milk. You know, you just have to take the the medication or your, your enzyme, you know, or there's a lot of lactose-free milks and and foods now too so understanding and then of course there's different treatments for all the others we talked about which we can't go through but it's all in the book so yeah so there's the um, um the auto injector you talked about uh so if it is a very severe reaction uh the patient will the patient be still will, will the patient has enough time to administer it uh, himself or herself yeah, so that's a really good question. And that's why we say educate people who you are close to, right? Your family members should all be educated for kids, you know, any babysitters or, you know, daycares. Um, on our website, which I can give you, we have so many resources for schools, for um, daycares, and now we're making them for colleges, you know, because we want students to know, right? Because you may, you know, for college, you may be at a party, you know, or something and somebody eats something and you want to make students aware now that, you know, 10% of kids are going to college with a food allergy, you want to make sure everyone around them knows what to do if they have an anaphylactic reaction. So we're creating these resources. They're all free um, and for anyone to use, but, uh, but educating yourself and educating the people around you. Typically, you know, if you start an individual who's having an allergic reaction, I know so many who have been able to inject themselves. They can feel it, they know what's happening, and they quickly use it. The biggest thing is don't wait too long. If you start feeling that the reaction is getting more severe, then use it right away because it's it's not harmful. It's not going to hurt you, you know, to use it. Um, and it may really improve your condition and, and stop it from going down that downward spiral. 
Yeah, it's it's almost magical. So, <laughs> what is the what is the what is the action there? Uh, just just a couple of seconds of putting this material into the body, it completely calms down. So, what's the mechanism? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it's epinephrine, right? So it's adrenaline. So it it um, it uh, constricts your uh, blood vessels, right, to make them less leaky, and it relaxes your airways. Um, so it is is doing two things to two different parts so you don't have this drop in blood pressure and, and cardiovascular effects because it's it's tightening up your your blood vessels but at the same time it's relaxing your airway so you can breathe again you know so those are those are two of the biggest um mechanisms of epinephrine it's it's i mean it's it's what you your own body you know we talk about adrenaline oh i have a lot of adrenaline right so then you're feeling like you know it's it's this energizing almost and, and it's a fight or flight type of a situation so um that's what that's what epinephrine does and that's how it works and it works so rapidly and that's what's better about it than other meds we used to say give benadryl benadryl is a antihistamine and histamine is one of the mediators that's released but um using that alone one it takes a long time and two it doesn't do all the other things, right? It just blocks histamine. And a lot of it's probably already released when you're having a reaction. Yeah, so the, so the action is sort of symptomatic. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily signaling the immune system that things are okay, but it's just basically giving you time to not to get uh, <laughs> thrown out, uh, so to speak, so that they can react to it, right? Um, is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, just, and you're not always going to need epinephrine, right? Sometimes you'll have a mild reaction, you'll have some hives, maybe you will have some vomiting, and then you'll feel better, and your reaction stops on its own. So, because in your own body, you have adrenaline, you know, so your body then, you know, as the immune system's reacting, then your body, you know, your adrenaline's, your own personal, your body wants to be better, you know, so it's not that it's always going to just react and take you down the spiral. It could be a mild reaction that you won't need it, but you should be ready. I think that's the, and and not be fearful. There's a lot of fear around it because it's an injection, but we're trying to get rid of that fear. And uh, so that is sort of one type of treatment. Um, are there sort of long-term uh, treatment options um, for people suffering from this? Yeah, yeah, um, those are what I was telling you. There's only one FDA-approved one. It's called Palforzia. It's a peanut oral immunotherapy. So it's it's almost like allergy shots, right? You increase your immune system's ability to recognize it slowly over time, and you go higher doses. And um, usually they take you up to, you know, a couple peanuts, one peanut, two peanut, three peanuts, and then um, we ha we don't know yet because the studies are young. You know, they haven't been happening for that long. What happens after that? You know, do some people then develop natural tolerance and can eat ad lib, or are they always going to have to eat some of that peanut in their diet, you know, to to keep that protection? Um, what happens if they stop eating it? You know, they go to college, they don't want to take their peanut every day, and will they, when they eat it, will they have a, a reaction, or will their body still maintain, you know, that tolerance level? So there's a lot of unanswered questions, but at least there is an FDA-approved treatment. And then, as I mentioned, there, those biologics are coming. There's a patch that's almost approved. 
which is epicutaneous immunotherapy. So again, small amounts of the protein through your skin. There's sublingual immunotherapy, so under your tongue. Um, and then there's biologics. People are um, looking at making vaccines. So there's there's quite a bit coming in the next uh, couple of years. The, the beauty of that is that I would imagine you're going to get cured, right? You, you, do, you do that for a while and then the body gets sensitized to the allergen and, and you don't have to do it again or? We don't know. See, this is, it's all so new, right? This just got yeah. approved last year. So now as people start doing it and we have the data and we can follow them, I always say though, it, it, it's so dependent. It's really personalized medicine, right? Because you don't know, we got to figure out a predictive model, like who will go on to have a successful cure almost, who will need to take it on a regular basis, you know, who is it best for? Um, we don't have enough people yet and data to, to make those decisions. Yeah, and the body's reacting to different things, right? So I, I don't know much about this. I haven't seen anything, but like peanuts, for example, um, like, you know, people are allergic, allergic to peanuts. If somebody opened, you know, a pack of peanuts, you know, a few meters away from that person, uh, you know, uh, that person uh, reacts to it. Uh, so the body, you know, doesn't even have the time to break it down and see what is in it. It, it is uh, it's sort of counterintuitive in some ways. Yeah, well, so I do want people to know that, and because then this brings out the fear, right? So typically you're right. If you open a pack, it's the protein has to get into the body, right? So if the protein flies around, there are times where it can, but if you most of the time when you're going to have a severe reaction, you will be ingesting that food, you know, and not necessarily um, from being around the food. Does that make sense? So yeah, I guess yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to. We have to be be careful because again, um, it's, it's so hard to stay away, like completely away from these foods, um, and in your daily lives, they're going to be around. So know that it's it's more the ingestion of that protein um, that is going to cause a reaction, unless the protein gets into the air, which in in certain circumstances it can. Right. Yeah. So so you conclude in the in the book uh, you say act locally, think globally. <laughs> what we can do as a society to turn this epidemic around. Um, so so I want to ask you about that, but I want to ask you sort of a general question. So from a healthcare policy perspective based on everything that we know today, um, what are the sort of the policy levers that, you know, you would you would want to influence? Uh, I mean, 10% uh, prevalence is quite high, so it has tangible healthcare costs for the system, right? So so what would you suggest from a policy perspective? And I'm, I'm thinking uh, specifically US now. Okay, so um, yeah, we did an economic study. It's been a while, 2013, I think it was published, that showed uh, food allergy costs $24.8 billion a year. So we're, we're redoing it now. So we'll have new numbers, but obviously that's going to go up, and that's a lot. So it is a big healthcare cost. Um, I think some things that are really important, you know, from a policy is um, access to care. So, you know, for a long time we thought, oh, this really doesn't affect minority populations as much. But in, you know, when we did our national study, we found, yes, it does, as does asthma and other atopic conditions. They're just not getting to see their doctor, 
right? They're not talking about it because they're they're just avoiding it. And so, um, so you know, trying whatever we can to improve access to care, to educate, you know, generalists if they can't get to an allergist, to try to get more allergy care available is very important. Other things, you know, uh, one big policy, this was a big one, um, just passed, it's called the FASTER Act, and um, it allowed for labeling. So one big thing is labeling. How do you know what's in a food? So food packages by law have to um, report in bold or has to say contains the top eight allergens. So peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, finfish, milk, egg, soy, and wheat. And we saw sesame rising so much and sesame was a hidden ingredient. So just now this policy was passed um, and we had published the paper on sesame allergy prevalence that went into the policy. So I, I feel very proud of our team at CIFAR, um, but that, um, that helped get that passed. So now in the next four years, sesame will have to be on that label too. So important things. Um, also in the act was that the government will help follow food allergy. Other things that I think are really important policy-wise are, as we saw in COVID with um, food insecurity, you know, so much food insecurity, so many lines. Well, what about food conditions? What about any of those people who have food conditions? You know, with WIC right now, how do they take care of, you know, what are they doing around people with food allergies? How do we get food insecure families who also have food conditions, nutritional substitutes? You know, like there's, so there's there's a lot um, to use food as medicine, right? And in, in these cases and, and push policies like that. So yeah, I, that's yeah. probably enough, <laughs> so many. Yeah, so some sort of an allergy risk index on the label would be quite interesting. Uh, obviously, there'll be a lot of food fight, pun intended, uh, yeah. over it. Uh, but uh, th that is, uh, from a um, consumer's perspective, it's actually really good information, right, that consumers could utilize. To, uh, and so in conclusion, so what do, you, what do you mean by act locally, think globally? What, what, is, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I think we all have to keep it in, in perspective and know that everyone can do something. Right, so we talked about the butterfly effect and everyone can have an action that will influence, you know, this area. And for a long time, you know, there was there was a lot of um, misunderstanding about food allergy and decreased awareness. And now it's becoming more, under, you know, like people are understanding it more, people are educated about it, you know, it's getting out there, but it takes all of us to do that, right? We all need to, Put in the time and effort to educate our communities, to to teach, to access, and to you know push for policies, because I honestly think this is something that is is going to be a global situation. And the more we learn as a society that's on the forefront, that's experiencing it the most right now, you know, we can then influence it, you know, before so that everybody doesn't have to reinvent, reinvent, you know, like the things that we're learning we can push out and spread. You know, now that we know these things about prevention, we can do that globally, but we need to start doing it here and learn methods for doing it right and then be able to to support our global, you know, world that we live in. So I, don't, <laughs> I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, as you say, from an education perspective, um, really kind of understanding, understanding the problem sort of the first step. Um, 
and so the, the book helps quite a bit in that. So Food Without Fear, it's out there. So, you know, people want to learn more about this, this is probably a good place to start. Excellent. Thanks so much for spending time with me on a, on a weekend, Ruchi. Yeah, thank you for the same. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.